10-10-10 was uh, the, the date that Ronaldo and I were given leadership of the team that leads this church, and that was 12 years ago this week. So I've been reflecting about that time this week and reflecting just about not just the leadership transition, but actually a transition in what was central to our church. And it was around that time, between 12 and 15 years ago, that we as a leadership team here at Southlands and many of you had what we call a gospel resurgence. We rediscovered the goodness, the richness, the beauty of the gospel. We discovered that while we believed in the gospel, that it was in some ways in the suburbs of our church life, not Main Street. The gospel was something that we tended to preach to the lost, but not to ourselves. And it was around this time that a man called Michael Eaton came and sat with a bunch of leaders in that lobby out there and taught us beautifully about the power of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel and then said at the end of that time, I've been sitting with you guys for a while, some of you were in that room, and I've noticed that you tend to be experts at your model of church, but novices at the message of Christ. And it was one of the most beautiful gut punches. It required humble admission that we loved ecclesiology. We loved talking about how to do church. But actually, when we came to the power and the authority and the beauty and the efficacy of the message of Christ, we were novices. And so we began a journey of learning from many whose models were totally different from ours but acknowledging actually even if they don't believe in elders and deacons, don't believe in apostolic teams, don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit, they still have something to teach us about the gospel. And it was actually a beautiful, beautiful time of gospel resurgence and rediscovery. Now at that time, we began to say this. If Southlands were a town, Main, Main Street would be the gospel. Main Street would be the gospel. We'd have other roads out of Main Street, but that would be the burning center of our church. And since that time, the gospel has become a brand. Uh, the gospel has become a movement. It's become a cliche with a fair amount of baggage. And there can be a tendency to go, well, let's go on to some other center. Let's go on to some other main street. And I just want to say that at this time we need to double down on the gospel. That with a bad summary of the Apostle Paul across his epistles, God forbid that I glory in anything save in the cross of Christ. When I came to you, I preached the gospel as of first importance. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation. I count my life worth nothing if only I may finish my race that is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. <laughs> the gospel is not a brand. It is not a cliche. 
It is the power of God to salvation. It is the only message we have. And yet we, in the words of Ray Ortland, need to deepen our understanding of gospel, not just good gospel doctrine, but healthy gospel culture. How does the gospel shape every area of life? That doesn't mean that we don't care about the kingdom because it's the gospel of the kingdom. But I sat, Kevin and I sat actually with a group of about eight pastors uh, that have landed in our church in the last year or so, who have closed down their churches or left difficult church situations. And one of the guys said, but, but what about the kingdom? And I said, no, no, we, we really love the kingdom. We believe in the kingdom, but the kingdom is never done. The kingdom will only be done when Jesus returns. And I said to him, the beauty of discovering the gospel as center is that it gives us joy and peace to rest in what is done while we give ourselves to what is not done. Some people would say, well, well, just have Jesus as the center of your church. Absolutely, Jesus is the center. We, we're not just talking about a formula of ideas. We're talking about the man, the God-man, Jesus. And yet, while most, many churches would say, yeah, Jesus is at the center, I ask, well, Jesus doing what? Primarily, because Jesus, he taught moral ethics. He did miracles. He taught justice and, and mercy. He fed the poor. All of those things are part of the kingdom. And yet Paul said, no, no, at the center should be Christ and him crucified. And all those things flow out of that. And I want to encourage us, and each speaker wants to encourage you to think more deeply about how the gospel should shape every area of our lives and our churches. But this is not a time to shrink back from the gospel. This is a time to double down. I remember coming to uh, this nation and saying to Renel, I need to learn uh, an American sport. And, you know, I was reading deeply about the gospel at that time. I'd started a master's. It took me nine years to do my master's. But I was committed to, I, I, want, I want to wrestle with the power and the beauty and the depths of the gospel. And the Lord is so kind. You know, he sometimes uses books and preachers and podcasts. And other times he just uses the most banal of like weird things like softball. And I joined a softball league. Our, our church was not even a league. I mean, it was like a softball church thing, you know. I thought I must, I must learn an American sport and I still don't really get softball, that kind of like thing, you know. And uh, I was bad at softball. We were pretty much all bad at softball. But the thing that was so weird for me as an immigrant in 2008 was people kept on saying when they'd like strike out or drop the ball, my bad. And I would be going like, why are they saying my bad? And so I went to the team captain. I said, why is everyone saying my bad? And he didn't answer me, and so we, we carried on playing. And, and then I noticed they don't just say, my bad, but the whole team says, once he says, my bad, they say, no, you're good. So I went back to the captain. I was like, what is going on? They say, my bad, and, and you're good. He, so, he says, no, no, well, this is what's happening. My bad is an American expression for it was my fault. I'm not blaming anyone else. I'm taking full responsibility for this. So, okay, well, but what's, what's the you're good thing? Because... I mean, clearly he's not good. 
He said, no, no, when he says, when the team says you're good, we, we're not saying he's good. We're saying, no, you're actually bad, but it's good. Like you're, you're forgiven. It's, it's okay. And I looked at him. I said, you know, that's the gospel. That's the gospel when we are able to say, my bad, I'm not blaming anyone else. It's my fault. It's, it's my problem. God actually says, you're good. And when he's saying you're good, he's not actually saying you're good. He's actually saying you're bad. But actually because you're admitting my bad and you are hiding yourself in the perfect goodness of my son, you're good. You're justified. And I believe if we continue with open hearts and open minds from the word of God, from good theology, even from softball for heaven's sake, the Lord will keep on reminding us about the beauty of the gospel. It's like a gem whose facets never end. We want to grow our church with unsaved people. But in many ways, it starts with the gospel being stunning news to us again. So I, I want to ask from Acts 14 how the gospel shaped the early church in implicit and explicit ways. I preached from this text on Sunday, but Southland's Brayer, don't check out because I'm preaching a different message from the same text, okay? John Stott says about the book of Acts that while Acts is not prescriptive, it is significant description. It's significant description. In other words, it's the way God wants the church to be. Not in perfection, but in maturity, it's it's like the gem, it's the grade A diamond that we grade other diamonds against. It's significant description. And we're going to find in Paul and Barnabas' first apostolic journey from Antioch that the gospel was both explicit and implicit. It doesn't mean that we have to do a trip to Cyprus and Derby and Lystra. It's not prescriptive in that way, but God is giving us significant description in terms of this is how the early church was shaped by the gospel. So let's read Acts 14, 1 to 24. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace. It's another word for the gospel, the word of his grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learnt of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul had done what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. 
But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders from them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. What we find here is in this first apostolic journey from the church at Antioch into Asia Minor, that there was a great drama in the preaching of the gospel. The gospel was divisive. It was polarizing. Some sided with the Jews. Some sided with the apostles. There was no in-between. There was a sense of the gospel being a polarizing message. Paul was demonized by some so that they wanted to stone him. And he was idolized by others so that they wanted to worship him. And Paul very quickly did not allow a celebrity Christianity. No, 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 we are just like you, said Paul and Barnabas. Men of like nature to you. In other words, he was holding out a message. It wasn't the man, it was a message. And he, was caught, he preached the gospel in such a way that people knew they had to make a decision. He preached for a verdict. Either believe it or reject it. I think so often today we preach the gospel in such a way that people feel like they have an indefinite amount of time to think on it more. Paul preached it with an urgency to either side with me or side with the Jews. He certainly preached it in such a way that it riled people up. He wasn't complimenting them about their morality. There's a sense in which Paul was saying, you failed God's moral test. And that really riled up the Jews. And that's the bad news. We have to preach the gospel in such a way that God-fearers, even moral people, realize you have failed God's moral test. But the good news is that there is one who has got a 100% score on God's moral test, that is Jesus. The gospel is not good advice on how to get better, be a little happier. The gospel is good news that Jesus passed a test that we failed. And so the substitute, this perfect substitute, Jesus Christ, who actually said, not only did I get a perfect moral score, I'm willing to take your failure and give you my perfect moral score. 
And that infuriated some, so they sided with the Jews and delighted others, and they sided with Paul. There's this beautiful, beautiful news. John Stott says about the gospel, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone, and God claims penalties that belong to man alone. Isn't the gospel amazing? This amazing substitute, he claims the penalty that we should have received. And so we see in verse 15, Paul preaching the gospel for a verdict, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. So preaching the gospel is not just exposing the futility of trying to save ourselves. Preaching the gospel is exposing the futility of worshiping false idols that cannot, cannot save. And there was an exposure of idolatry amongst the Gentiles. It was fascinating being in Cyprus, which is on the way here. We were walking in the footsteps of Paul and Barnabas this last week. It was amazing. And we found ourselves in a, in a town called Larnaca. And Larnaca was the, the, the town in Cyprus where Lazarus, whom Christ rose from the dead, raised from the dead, he fled and exiled there. And history tells us that he actually met Paul and Barnabas on this first trip. And about 30 years later, he died and was buried there. The Archbishop of Constantinople exhumed his bones, had them sort of put in a casket. And now there is a church, the Church of Lazarus, where pilgrims of the Greek Orthodox Church go and they kiss his bones in the hope for healing. You just go, oh my gosh, we so easily make idols out of good things. Just prone to do that. You just think of Lazarus who's present with Jesus, just go, no, that wasn't it. That wasn't it. You're missing the point. And so whether it's exposing the futility of trying to save ourselves through morality, or exposing the futility of worshiping good things that have become ultimate things, we have to preach for a verdict. Remember Elijah to the prophets of Baal. How long will you limp between two opinions? If Baal is God, worship him. If God is God, Yahweh is God, worship him. And I think today, and I'm, I'm talking to preachers here, because we've seen manipulation in evangelistic crusades, we hold back from preaching for a verdict. But actually Paul preached for a verdict. Elijah preached for a verdict. Even Jesus talking about the great feast said, compel them to come. I'm not telling you to give altar calls, but I'm saying in our meetings, do we have such a high view of the sovereignty of God that say, oh, we, we don't want to be too forceful, or are we like Paul who's saying, you choose. You either side with Jesus or you side with yourself. There is a call to preach for a verdict. As C.S. Lewis once wrote, Jesus is either lunatic, liar, or Lord. You choose. You choose. Of course, there's different styles and ways to do that, but I believe God is calling preachers to be harvesters and to preach for 
a verdict. And then verse 21 continues that as they preached the gospel, they won a large number of disciples. So we're looking firstly at how the gospel actually shapes disciples. A large number. I love that. That actually the gospel is not against big, growing churches. That we are not to moralize size ever. And I think because most of us, well, all of us are smaller size on the grand scheme of the West Coast, we tend to demonize the megachurch. And there's reasons why we go, well, they built on stuff other than the gospel. And that's often true. But let's be careful that actually within the gospel is largeness. They won a large number of people. Jesus loved the crowd. He, was, he had compassion on the crowd. He taught the crowd. He healed the crowd. He, he fed the crowd. And I just want to encourage you never to moralize size. I realized in my own life, because I, I, I wrote the book, the medium-sized multiplying church, I'd started to moralize medium size is better. You know, a little bit like Goldilocks. Well, we're not small, but we're not big. We're medium size. But actually, like, they want a large number. The book of Acts is... is actually doesn't moralize size, but there's small and big churches there. And now God has us in a time where, where, where our church is kind of, well, is it medium size? Not really. It's more large. And am I okay with that? Does that mean that we're like not seeing the kingdom come? We're having to re-ask questions. Have we over-moralized medium size? Have you over-moralized small size? Have you over-moralized big size? If we preach the gospel, we're just going to say, oh, God, there's so many people out there that don't know you, Lord Jesus. Grow your church. And yet we know that as Jesus ministered to the crowd, as he fed the crowd, as he had compassion on the crowd, there were these moments, disciple-making moments, when 5,000 was reduced to 12. <laughs> Way to grow the church, Jesus. Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part of me and 5,000 scatter. And he says, you just wanted to fill your stomachs, but I've come bread of life to fill your souls. And there's the kippies, the 12 disciples. And he's saying, you're going to leave me too? And where else can we go? Only you, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. There are these disciple-making, pruning moments we know. And that's what I love about verse 21. Not just a large number of converts, one, a large number of disciples, one. The gospel shapes disciples. More than just people that had given allegiance to Paul. They hadn't just sided with Paul like soccer fans. We're on Paul's team, not on the Jews' team. More than just giving allegiance, they were disciples. The gospel shaped them to be disciples. They, they were apprentices of Jesus. A disciple means an apprentice. And what you see here is that because Paul realizes that disciples are not just born, they are made. That he returns to places that are dangerous. He returns to the church that sent him. And in fact, verse 28, it said, and he spent not a little time with them. Disciple making takes not a little time. How many of us know that? Not a little time. And so when we're talking about the gospel saving a large number of people, 
Amen. But then the work begins. Because Christians are born, but disciples are made. And I don't know about you, but COVID was apocalyptic in the worst sense of the word. People got very apocalyptic saying, oh, it's the end of the world as we know it. But actually the word apocalypse means revealing. And COVID was apocalyptic for me and for us in that it revealed a deficit of disciple making. And we realized that many of our people were shaped not by the gospel, but by their favorite news channel. Not by the gospel, but by their preferred politician. Not by the gospel, but by their preferred social media influencer. And we found, oh God, we haven't really made disciples, have we? Or we thought we had. And it was a moment when we lost many people who actually were not shaped by Jesus. They were shaped more by the culture on both sides of the political aisle. And so this is a sober moment post-COVID to go, okay, God, we want to grow. We believe there's largeness in the gospel. We're not going to moralize small, but Lord, we do not ever want to sacrifice growth on the altar of disciple-making. I said that wrong. We don't ever want to sacrifice disciple-making on the altar of growth. You with me? Apprenticeship means that we take time to see the curse of sin redeemed by the gospel. There's that beautiful Christmas carol, Joy to the World, that says, He comes to make his blessings abound far as the curse is found. And gospel-shaped discipleship means that we go, man, in sexuality, in finance, in relationships, in politics, in marriage, in parenting, the curse has corrupted God's design. And so we preach the gospel there that it might make God's blessings abound as far as the curse is found. The gospel is still redeeming every facet of our lives, isn't it? But it requires that we go with courage to places where the curse is found, that God's blessings might abound. So discipleship is both allegiance and it's also apprenticeship. During COVID, we had a couple start to join our church who came with a special needs son. And quite quickly, I got to know the father. And uh, they'd sit there just, just listening, listening. And I heard that they were family members of some people in our church and heard that they, they didn't have faith. And we have a special needs ministry for kids. And so they were just so grateful to actually have some time away from their, their son and just felt blessed and, and well-hosted and he often had questions after the sermon and after a couple of chats, he said, you know, I haven't set foot in a church for 25 years because I was sexually abused in a cult. I was like, whoa, God, how's the gospel going to redeem this? And we continued to love, and it was a team effort for sure. We preached the gospel, and about six months in, 
he came and he said, I've put my faith in Jesus. I would like to get baptized. And then his common-law wife, a couple of weeks later, said, yeah, I want to do that too. So we baptized them at Easter, but they were living together out of wedlock. And it was one of those messy gospel situations of, well, do we allow them to be baptized or should they get married first and what do we do, etc. And I, I went and had a coffee with both of them. I just said, look, baptism is not a sign that you've got everything together. But if you get baptized, it means you're an apprentice of Jesus and he's going to start to speak to you about getting married. So we're willing to baptize you in good faith because you've said you've put your faith in Jesus. But that's not just a moment. That's apprenticeship. So just know after baptism, we're going to teach you to obey Jesus in terms of marriage. He said, okay, that's fine. And boy, I haven't done the, the premarital counseling. It's been more J.D. and Kirk, but it's been long and slow. And it's been three steps forward and two steps back. But two weeks ago, he came to me and he said, Alan, will you marry us in two weeks' time? I just thought, man, gospel-shaped discipleship. It's messy, but it's glorious. It's glorious. I think they probably joined about two years ago. Messy, but glorious. Then we find that it's not just gospel-shaped discipleship, but we're called to gospel-shaped ambition. (laughs) And we find, most of us know this, that Acts 13, the leaders of that church were incredibly multicultural, both Jews and Gentiles, that Paul was a Jew from Tarsus, which was in Asia Minor. Barnabas was a Jew from Cyprus, which was in a Gentile region. And as they were worshiping in Antioch, which was present-day Turkey, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work that I have for them. And their first apostolic journey was to the Gentiles, was to Asia Minor. And I just think of that prayer meeting where they were worshiping and fasting when the Holy Spirit said to this wonderful leadership team facing revival in Antioch, set apart for me those guys. I'm just thinking, those guys were the MVPs. Those guys were the best preachers and Barnabas was the best giver and the son of encouragement and I mean, revival was happening primarily because of their gift and you're giving away your best gift. They could have so easily been this, oh man, let's just keep it, keep it tight in Antioch. And I love the fact that Acts 14 gives such a like a geographical description of of where they went. They go to Cyprus, which at that time was a Roman colony. They go to Iconium, Derby, Lystra, that was in, in Greece. Go back to Antioch. There's a sense in which God is reaffirming that the gospel is multicultural and multinational. I'm sending these two Jewish guys to a Gentile region. Let's just get the, the map up there. We've just been here and This is where they were, close to Syria, up to Galatia, Cappadocia, Derby. 
I think one of the reasons why the book of Acts is so specific about geography is that they know the human tendency to take the Great Commission to the ends of the earth and shrink it to our geography. It's like we have the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, where God commissions them to fill the whole earth and they always want to shrink it down to one tree, one piece of fruit on the tree. There's something in us that is always shrinking the largeness of the Great Commission down, smaller than God wants. And Remember Jesus when he came into the temple and his blood began to boil, not just because there were money changes, not just because they'd made it a den of thieves, but because God's design for the house was to be a house of prayer for all nations. That was that Jews and Gentiles should worship together, but Jesus was foreshadowing his great commission, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. There's a gospel ambition that I want to freshly call us to. Remember Paul writing from Ephesians to the church in Rome that he never got to visit. He says, I make it in Romans 15, my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. And he says to, you, to, to them, I'm longing to get to Spain but I've been preoccupied here in Judea. But, but since my work is accomplished here, I'm coming to visit you that you might aid me on my journey to Spain. And you ask me, well, well Alan, what's the difference between gospel ambition and selfish ambition? Because we've seen a lot of that. We've seen a lot of people building their own empires and kingdoms and social media platforms. Well, I mean, clearly... Paul and Barnabas didn't have selfish ambition because when people tried to worship them as Zeus and Hermes, no, 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 we're just like you. Stop that now. And yet there was this largeness of heart to preach the gospel where Christ had not been named. I know some of you are going, Alan, I'm just trying to keep my head above water here. Like you don't understand my church situation. You don't understand our bank balance. You don't understand my, my margins of, of, of energy. I mean, we, we would have to acknowledge that Acts 14 is not triumphalistic. It's, it's bloodstained. It's full of pain. And it reveals God's heart to go beyond our own context. And I know that in many ways, this last two years has, has robbed us of gospel ambition. We've, we've tended to shrink down into survival and, and for good reason. But I've, I've been sitting for about three months with just a, a prophetic burden to, to call you, my, my brothers and sisters, who I know so much of your pain and some of it I don't know but with, with an empathetic heart to say, beloved, there's more. There is more. Jesus wants us to aim higher, not out of selfish ambition, not notches on a belt, not pins in a map, but to preach Christ where he has not been named. What does that mean for us? What does 
healthy gospel ambition mean for you and I? A couple of suggestions. One, it would be faith for new salvations. Faith to grow the church, not just through shuffling the ecclesiological deck. Conversion growth, not just transfer growth. I know that after COVID, it was like, I don't care who comes, just anyone. I would have grace for the devil himself if he joined my church. You know what I'm saying? But actually, we can't stay there. We can't stay there. We cannot grow our churches through sheep stealing. I know there's such a thing as sheep rescuing. I know there is. Sheep rescuing from places that are dysfunctional, that aren't preaching the gospel, that aren't making disciples. Of course, there's a category for that. But gospel-shaped ambition certainly says, Lord, at least prodigals coming home. (laughs) People who were caught in cults, Lord, them. People who thought they were Christians but, but realized they weren't, at least them, Lord. And then how about some people of other faiths deconverting? We so we so worried about Christians deconverting, and it's a thing, but 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 gospel ambition says, no, we're trusting for Muslims to deconvert and convert to Christ. That's gospel ambition. We can become so defensive, but gospel ambition gets on the front foot, acknowledging that there is hostility, new salvations, new cultures. How about praying, Lord, what are the cultures that we haven't touched yet in our city? Even perhaps the subcultures. I love hearing from Lawrence and, and Liz and the crew that they, they were welcomed to a powwow of First Nations people and asked to preach. And it's the first time in 25 years that a Christian has preached the gospel in this First Nations powwow. I'm saying that's gospel ambition. That's amazing to be a part of. How about new leaders planting churches in new regions? Paul could have so easily done a book tour, a DVD tour. Look at my scars. I was stoned and they, they got around me and I'm, I've come back from the dead. But instead all he does, it says he goes around setting elders in place in the different towns. That was his gospel ambition. That's planting churches. Preach the gospel, make disciples, set elders in place. That's gospel ambition. Let's trust God for that. New salvations, new cultures, new leaders, new churches, new power. Acts 14 is saturated, not just with the proclamation of the gospel, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power. I mean, they want to worship Paul. He's so powerful. And these disciples, the first thing they do when he's stoned, they just say, well, of course, we're just going to gather around him and pray. Saturated with the Spirit's power. Interesting, we had a, a couple join our church, and they said to us, our sons, they've got four sons, have all been through the wars. And would you come and anoint them with oil? Because you're elders. And the lady came to Brunel and said, we've been here six weeks. We've, we've stuck, stuck six. Can we get an elder to anoint our kids with oil? 
I was just like, wow, we haven't been asked to do that for years. And so we did our pastoral visit with my bottle of oil. And I was so embarrassed, I left it in the car in case they were not serious. And went and we sat and she was like, well, well did you bring your oil? Uh, yes, it's in the car. Well, well, can you come and anoint our kids? It was a fascinating moment. They gathered their kids together and they said, kids, we haven't been submitted to elders in a church for a number of years. And we think that's partly the reason why you've had so many painful operations, because it was bizarre. And they said, we know God is good, but we also believe in the authority of the local church. So we've, we've, we've called for an elder to anoint you with oil. And they, they asked me to go and anoint each kid with oil. And a month later, we had dinner with them and they said, something lifted off our house that night. Something lifted off our house. That needs to be normal. Normal. Gospel-shaped ambition. Can I humbly ask that as a family on mission, that we would spur one another on to gospel-shaped ambition, to aim higher, not for our own platform, not for pins on a map, but to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. I've got a guy in my discipleship group. We're going through the screw tape letters and about 20 guys in the morning. And, and he said to me this week, my dad has been on a faith journey. And I was on the phone with him this week, he said, and I've been down. And my dad said to me, can I pray for you? And he said, he prayed the name of Jesus over me. And he said, I've never heard him mention the name of Jesus. I'm just going, that's gospel ambition. He's mentioning the name of Jesus. He probably cussed the name of Jesus. Now he's praying, healing over his son in the name of Jesus. I love the fact that we sent a team to an unreached people group in Thailand. I love that. I believe here there's still plants like that to World Day. But as we trust God for that, let's trust as well for fathers praying the name of Jesus over their sons for the first time. That's gospel ambition. And then let's land with this. We're out of time. Gospel-shaped hope in hardship. Verse 22 to 23, Apostle Paul strengthens and encourages the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Way to go, Paul. What an encouragement. It's like, Paul, Tony Robbins is on the phone, man. He wants your life coaching gift of encouragement. I mean, this is so foreign. This statement is so foreign. He encourages them and strengthens their hearts, saying it's through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. That word tribulation is Greek word thlipsis, which is a pressing or a rubbing or a hemming in. So certainly Paul is referring to the opposition they've experienced, the stoning, 
but he's not saying to the church in Antioch, all of you will suffer just like me. He's saying intrinsic in the gospel message is suffering. He's saying if we believe that such great good came out of Christ's suffering, are you willing to believe that great good can come out of your suffering? That's what he's saying. You'll suffer in different ways. But suffering is part of the passage, hardship, tribulation. I don't know what the pre-trib rapture guys do with this verse. I'm not sure what they do with it. It's through tribulation that you enter the kingdom. (laughs) It's a a tough one to get your head around. And I'm not wanting to fight with you. I'm just saying that, I mean, even if you are a pre-trib rapturist, at least prepare yourself to go through this kind of stuff and your people. We've just been with 140 leaders representing 2,000 churches in 90 nations with our New Frontiers family. And probably about half of them come from persecuted regions. And I want to say, you can't tell them anything about the pre-trib rapture because they say, we're in it. We're in it. And God is with us in it. And we're still saved as far as we know. And the gospel is still bearing fruit. Open Doors USA says that 5,898 people were killed for their faith last year. 5,100 churches were attacked. 4,800 people were killed just in Nigeria for their faith. Persecution is on the up. And yet speaking to these dear brothers and sisters, There is a deep humanity. There's a deep pain. And yet there's such a living, resilient, gutsy faith. I just go, guys, of course we can resource them with prayer and finance and trips, etc. But they've got a resource that we so desperately need. They can teach us not to have such an aversion to hardship. Can teach us that actually it's one of the keys of the kingdom doing hard things in Jesus' name. We don't have to wait until we persecuted before we do hard things in Jesus' name. That actually there's a call to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. And I know the Lord has been speaking to us about self-care too. There is a place for self-care. But let's make sure that we don't get so into self-care that we forget that at the heart of the gospel is self-denial. Hard things. And that, that's the way the kingdom comes. That actually it's through suffering that we share in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. That God reveals himself to us in ways he doesn't when we don't suffer. You think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. It was only in the fire that they knew the fourth man. And that's what 
I see when I'm with the persecuted churches, they know Jesus. They've, they've, they've shared in the fellowship of his sufferings in a way that I haven't. And it puts our suffering in perspective. I know I'm, I'm sitting with a, with, with, with a room full of people that have gone through hard things. I'm not making light of your hard things. I'm trying to infuse them with gospel meaning though. And I'm also giving a perspective because I feel like I'm suffering when I have to park across the street and walk here. Where's my pastor's parking place? I feel like I'm suffering when my 401k or my 403b takes a dive. Probably not suffering. I feel like I'm suffering when in economy class my, my legs are so close to the seat in front that I have to put my leg out there and the drinks tro trolley rams into it, you know. I tease my wife, I say like, I bear on my knee the, 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 the scars of Jesus, you know. But, but it's probably not suffering. It's a little bit of, of discomfort. But what, what, what Paul is saying as I, as I land is that there's no senseless suffering when it is done in Jesus' name. There's no unrewarded suffering when it is done in Jesus' name. That all our hardships can be wrapped in glory when they are done in Jesus' name. And I know sitting in a room of people who have experienced incredibly hard things. But as Romans 5 says, our suffering produces perseverance and our perseverance produces good character and our good character produces hope and our hope does not disappoint us because the Holy Spirit has been poured into our heart, the love of God through the Holy Spirit. In other words, when the Holy Spirit is poured into our heart, when we go through hard things, we come through hopeful. Samuel Rutherford said this, God reserves the choicest of wines for the, for the seller of suffering. That God feeds us with the choicest of wines when we suffer. So brothers and sisters, let's allow the gospel to, to shape us, to preach for a verdict, to make apprentices of Jesus. Let's allow the gospel to shape us so that we're not just trying to sustain Let's allow the gospel to infuse fresh ambition in us. Let's allow the gospel to infuse us with hope through the Holy Spirit when we go through hard things, knowing that our hard things will one day be wrapped in glory. Amen? Let's pray.